I sing in the car with the radio on. I sing in the shower. I do work at my desk in my public office while singing. I am quite annoying about it and my voice isn't very good. But I sing for pleasure. And and contrary to what you might have been taught or might think, birds don't just sing for mating or to alert, you know, other birds of danger, but they also sing for pleasure. I'm Louis Colavertolo, and I am a graduate student trying to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph, or the artist formerly known as Louis Colavertolo, graduate student in food science, trying to get a PhD in food science at the University of Guelph. And I don't know a lot about birds, or really anything about birds, but I do know what it is like to talk to other graduate students about what they study and how any of that is important in my life and everyone's lives at that matter. Most people turn to the radio to listen to music to drown out the noise, and I guess some people, and I guess you, are turning on a podcast or the radio in order to drown out other sounds that are going on in your world. So it's high time we talk to someone who knows a little bit about singing. Well, in our case, we're going to be talking to Jeremy Spool, who looks at birds and how birds sing and why birds sing. I know I derive pleasure from babbling on for hours and hours and hours, but I guess birds do too. Well, it's a good thing that Jeremy is going to tell us all about this kind of stuff. But there's something you need to keep in mind. As grad students, we are far, 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 far from perfect. And we certainly don't know everything, which is why you're listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff. Hi, Jeremy. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I have been doing well over here. Can you do us a favor and walk us through your educational history? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in the Bay Area in California, uh, went to college at University of California, Berkeley, uh, and then went straight to a PhD program a couple of years after I graduated. Uh, at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, and then I graduated from there, um, and without taking a break, I came to University of Massachusetts Amherst to do my postdoc, and I've been here for just over two years now. All right, so you have traveled the continental United States. You slowly made it from West Coast all the way to the East Coast. Yeah, I've done a migration. Yeah, <laughs> well, what a segue. I almost didn't even have to do it myself. Here we are. Jeremy, you're an expert. Today's topic is birds. Birds. But specifically bird brains. Why? Okay, I can think of like 12 jokes, but uh, why are you so obsessed with bird brains? <laughs> so, um, I never saw myself here like if you would have asked me you know even seven seven to ten years ago like will you be studying neuroscience and will that neuroscience be in a bird brain um i would have just like laughed uh i imagine anyone would faced with that insane maybe, yeah. question. i mean it is very specific so i was really interested in veterinary science when i was uh you know, before college and even some of college. And um, I got really disillusioned with the career. I worked in vet offices and uh, didn't seem like the vets were enjoying their time just in the specific place I was in, right? So my mentors were encouraging me to do something different. Um, I took a class in college uh, that was part ornithology, so part study of birds, part mammals, part amphibians. And I was so stoked on the mammal part, like I was waiting for it. But we started with birds, and I didn't know anything about birds. Um, so I thought birds and bird watching were kind of like an old 
people thing. Like I was imagining like two older, you know, a white couple on a bench. Maybe they have binoculars and there's like a pair of mallards like on the water or something like that. They're kind of foraging and, you know, they're just noticing how nice everything is. Um, but in this class, I was forced to learn these bird songs and the different birds around me. And I still remember the first time that I had to study for this quiz and then I actually heard the bird song in real life, um, like outside. And it just tripped me up. Like it made me look around for the first time. Like I was tuning into like a whole different kind of world. Um, and so I just got obsessed with bird songs. Like just like this, it kind of was my ticket into this other world. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but uh, when I decided I was kind of interested in studying that, I could either study bird song just in the field, or there was a field of neuroscience that was actually studying bird song that I had no idea existed, you know, at the time. Um, so I got into bird neuroscience because I was really interested in the birds and the songs. Wow. So, okay, you took a class, you learned about bird songs, which uh, help me out here. Bird song, I feel if I were to guess, is uh, something about mating maybe yeah yeah and yeah i mean good guess right so they can use it for you know advertising for a mate or maybe they use it you know to chase other animals off their territory if that's what they do i got involved with the kind of neat species that a lot of people might know european starling which are an introduced species you know over here that's the shakespeare one isn't it yeah yeah the one they let loose in the park <laughs> yeah 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 do do you have a brief clip of that story do you do you remember enough to tell it Oh, I might butcher it, but my my memory of it or the way it was passed down to me, right, is that there was some society in New York that was trying to introduce all the animals that Shakespeare ever talked about into New York Central Park. Um, apparently, they tried starling several times and they kept dying. Uh, but at least one time they were successful and kind of the rest is history. There was just some organization of people back when you could just you know, put a starling in a crate and ship it across the Atlantic. I mean, one, it sounds like a strange hobby, but two, that, that species turned out to do like a lot of ecological harm, didn't it? Yeah. So they're considered introduced and they've kind of spread, you know, along, you can tell I have an immediate defensive reaction against it because I love the starlings. Okay. Um, all right. So this is a biased <laughs> opinion, everyone. Yeah, I know. Right. I have to like tell you about my conflict of interest. Um, so Pete, I think, I think there is probably data out there that they, you know, are an agriculture, they, you know, agricultural pests, um, I think, and they displace some native birds from their nesting sites. Uh, they can be aggressive and, uh, but they really reproduce and kind of follow humans around. They don't really do well out here where humans don't exist. Mm. So, so they're, some... they're a New York city bird kind of at its heart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they make the rounds. They like Never the Never leave in the island kind of situation. Yeah, they kind of island hop. Um, they're cool, though. Yeah. Have you ever seen starlings in the winter? Like, do you have them where you are? Uh, gosh, I don't know if we have starlings over in the greater Toronto area, but I have seen them when I was living near New York. Okay, so in the winter, you can see, like, the starlings are really social. So, like, in the winter, they'll gather into flocks of hundreds and sometimes thousands of birds. Um, and they look like these schools of fish in the air. Like, that's the way they fly around. they very shape-shifting. They go all over the place. And the other thing that they do is they just sing. 
just incessantly. So this kind of song, you know, it's not to attract a mate and it's not to drive somebody away from a territory. It kind of feels like people at a bar, just like chatting about, you know, whatever's gone on during the day. Oh, wow. So they're like legitimately singing for just pleasure. Yeah. I mean, that's one way to look at it. Right. Um, and that was the species I did my PhD on. And that was what my scientific advisor, uh, Dr. Lauren readers at university of Wisconsin, Madison, that was her big hypothesis was that she, you know, was interested in, you know, some seeing these birds singing for apparently looked like no reason. Like why, like, what's the point? Right. So why would a bird, if there's no immediate consequence for singing, like, why would you sing? kind of like why does the caged bird sing or kind of one of those questions right? oh wow yeah. yeah 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 so so it's not like you know the birds were helping some uh princess who lives in the woods like sweep under the carpets or something like that they they, <laughs> they weren't doing a musical per se but uh, they just sing socially and uh, what did you find out about that like what what did we have any conclusions yeah it's um so this goes into both you know, she was a psychologist by training. And so this kind of goes into, you know, concepts about motivation and reward. So she was really interested in, okay, so we got these birds and they're singing in this non-breeding season, right? So like one way to look at it from like the neuroscience view would be that these birds are practicing, that they're kind of, you know, sharing notes with each other um, and practicing for when the breeding season actually comes. But then from the psychology perspective, you think, okay, but like, really, like, what's the motivation? Like in the bird, like, what is it feeling? You know, what are the, what, what is the motivation for actually doing this in the moment? Um, and so her like hypothesis was that in the breeding season, when these starlings are all, you know, geared up and they're like ready to go, uh, they're, you know, packed with steroid hormones and the steroid hormones and the presence of these like mates and competitors, like that's the motivation, right? So we should see the brain, the areas that control singing, you know, during the breeding season, those areas should be packed and, you know, having a lot of activity when there's mates around or when there's competitors, like there should be some kind of relationship to what's going on in the starlings outside world. So then correct me if, I'm wrong. This, if you were to see activity in the brain during breeding for the, the singing part of the brain, does that really help us understand why they do this during the social gatherings when it's not breeding times? Yeah. So that's the other piece. Um, so one thing that, you know, I was working on in this lab was, okay, so I explored a little bit of that, but what do these brain areas look like? You know, supposedly, you know, we say that they're important for song, but what does it look like in the non-breeding season and can we tie that to like some kind of like you know motivation or reward kind of thing so what we were doing is we were taking starlings in both seasons like both the breeding season and the non-breeding season we were setting them up in situations where they would sing and then we were using a psychological test of reward or like a condition place preference um so this is like uh now we're moving on to the reward side right so uh when a starling you know, sings, is this like social chit chat where we're sort of both motivated, but we're also getting something out of it. Like me and you having this conversation, right? We're not just doing it because it's a professional thing. Like going back and forth like this is kind of fun, especially for extroverts. <laughs> <laughs> we love talking. I know. 
Um, so the idea was, are these chit-chatting starlings like showing more reward-type neurochemicals going on in the brain? And can we associate this with a psychology test that actually shows that the bird is um, feeling more rewarded by um, the singing? Okay. The trick of the test is that there are um, two or three places and the bird kind of hangs out in these two or three places and they look really distinct. Like say one chamber is blue with polka dots and the other is red with stripes, right? The bird sings in the blue chamber, but doesn't sing in the red chamber. Later, you give the bird a choice. Where does it want to spend its time? Probably the blue. Yeah, I know. Good guess. <laughs> That's what we were hoping to see and we did see it. Okay. So we've seen this multiple times that the more bird sings, the more times it prefers the place where it sang. And this is something that people use in psychology. When something's rewarding, you tend to like the place that you associated with that reward. Okay. So, yeah, for the same reason that you have a good time in a place, and then you associate that place with like a good time, like a nostalgic feeling. You know? Fair. So that's what we used to try to take advantage of to connect like the brain to the psychology concepts to the animal's actual behavior in the world. So then, and I think that there's one little gap that I still need a little help understanding here is that yeah. they preferred the area in which they were singing. But what triggered them to sing in the first place when it wasn't mating season? Yeah, um, that's still to somewhat, you know, it's an open question to some extent. We think that they sing more when there's other starlings around them. Mm -hmm. um, for the breeding starlings, they're triggered by, you know, a female enters the area, right? Or a competitor enters the area. And I should say that starlings, both males and females, sing. Okay. Uh, but males sing a little little bit more often than females. Yeah. Oh, all right. So super interesting. You get these birds, they're 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 singing for not just mating purposes. So it, it is really kind of a confusing thing because you can't interview a bird and ask them why they're singing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that would have made it easier. <laughs> you sound really disappointed that you can't do that, which understandable, but also I'm like, okay, Jeremy, whatever. Yeah, so, <laughs> you don't want to see me when I was pilot testing talking to birds. <laughs> did it work? Let's... It did. It did not. No. It didn't. It didn't work. No. Well, hey, maybe one day. Don't stop now. I know. Yeah, you'll. I'll be the person, and uh, maybe I'll go to Central Park and kind of one of those people you avoid. You know. Yeah. Like, yeah, the uh, person that shouts at the birds. We all yeah. know him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, viable career option at this point. So. Hey, if it all goes down the tank for me, you'll see me out there shouting at birds wow what yeah. a career aspiration Gosh, <laughs> put it on the resume so you look at then the brain to figure these things out and i've talked with a number of people who talk about the brain but we almost always talk about either rat brains or human brains but now we're talking about bird brains uh is a bird brain similar to a rat and a human brain oh you've just you've just asked a hard question my oh, friend oh no <laughs> There's a lot of, it's, it's really controversial. There's, um, well, so that's what my research centers on now, actually, is actually asking that question. Um, there's a lot of consensus over, you know, what people call lower parts of the brain. Um, and already you get people's hackles up when you start, you get some scientists hackles up when you start talking about higher and lower, right? Um, we tend to think on like a, a linear scale with evolution. So we tend to think of like humans at the top of the ladder then we think about other mammals below that. And then we think about birds and turtles and fish as if kind of like a fish turned into a reptile 
turned into a frog, then turned into a bird, and then turned into a mammal, right? Um, but what really happened, right, is that things kind of split off in parallel branches. And so, you know, mammals are one way of doing things, but they're not higher or lower than a frog. They simply are different. And so one way of looking at it is just that by comparing other vertebrate brains to one another, we actually get like the secret sauce of like what makes a brain a brain, right? If we only look at mammals, the chances of one mammal being similar to another are pretty high. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like just because they're mammals, we see the same thing from mammal to mammal. Right. And that would really make learning. that connection between the rat and the human. Yeah. So now we're talking on a branch way far down on this tree that goes on to the, the, the bird side. The, uh, don't tell me, don't tell me. Or, no, I don't know. They're not reptiles. <laughs> they're not fish. What are they? What are they? Vertebrae. Ver Wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vertebrae? So like the deep branch, right? We would call yeah. them, we would call um, amnias. Amnias, okay. Right. So amniates are like the like um, not just birds, right? But reptiles too. Oh, okay, right, right. This is kind of the whole. I've heard that the turtle turns into the chicken, and in the middle of there, there somewhere was a dinosaur. Yeah, yeah. Birds are dinosaurs. They're the only living dinosaurs. If you needed another reason to love birds. <laughs> yeah like well gee let me put it on my list like that little canary that i see come by my window it's great 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 grandpa was a t-rex yep yep um very true i think that that was one of the you know harder things for to to wrap your head around is the idea that the smallest chickadee or like something that looks so sweet and that we now associate with almost like a gentleness or like you know ah nature like it was, <laughs> it was like velociraptors and like things that, you know, were larger or smaller, but seemed more ferocious, you know, in our depictions. Yeah, it's crazy how far we've come. But uh, so, so the brains of this branch is yeah. this kind of, uh, I mean, it's not even just a branch. It's like a whole collection of branches. Their brains are significantly different than mammal brains, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, you might, so, I mean, bird brain, right? That's already bird, an insult right there. It, yeah. yeah, like, right, it's it's already there. You have a bird brain. <laughs> uh, but there's, like, a lot of smart birds out there, right? Like, uh, what about parrots and cockatoos, the ones that can process language? Oh, yeah, right? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to look at some of these birds and make the argument that a bird brain should be an insult. I mean, yeah. you could call something, uh, I don't know what to say, like, a, it, you could call something a mouse brain, right? Or like mm -hmm. you're such a mouse brain um but pinky and the brain brain was very smart brain was very smart right pinky lots of individual smart. variation <laughs> individual variation that's a very good point our sampling pool wasn't large enough yeah it just wasn't large enough but yeah birds have shown like these incredible abilities uh and you know some of the top ones are you can you can tell stories you know anybody who's encountered a raven in close proximity like people have stories of how these birds, you know, interact. Anybody who's owned a parrot or seen them in the wild or even seen them in a store, you know, um, people, you know, see how intelligent these birds are. And the question is, okay, how? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, that is kind of a crazy question. If I was think about all the birds that I interact with on a day, I would say that like the pigeons are like deceptively good at what they're doing. 
Oh yeah. Because like I've seen a pigeon like fly into a bodega and grab like a bag of chips and fly out. Uh, wow. If they're, <laughs> Not I mean. That. Well, I grew up in some pretty rough neighborhoods, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> so these birds are smart. And then you got like uh, the magpie, right? The magpie is that one that collects everything and puts it into its nest. So yeah. you'll find bits of plastic and cotton and, 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 and clothing and everything. Um, and then you have uh, the, the parrots that can mimic language. Like, it seems like there's such a wide variety of the, the brain functional abilities of this, you know, branch of animals. Yeah. And yet, so when you think of, like, you know, human brain intelligence, like, stereotypically, like, what do you imagine? Like, what is it about a human brain, like, from what we know kind of in the world that makes it so smart? Um, we're able to make decisions based on evidence and yeah. we're able to like self-actualize or like, um, come up with unique thought. I would say that's my guess. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that people say, you know, this is what makes, you know, humans so smart. And a lot of it is incredibly hard to test in another animal. Of Cause like course. you said, I mean, you can't, you know, ask them anything. Um, and so one thing that people do is they start looking at the structure of the brain and trying to say, okay, this structure in the brain, this is like a unique thing. This is what makes, this is like what's helping. And so like, you know, in our brain, we have like the folding mass, you know, above the lower part of the brain that we call the cortex. Um, it's foldy, it's wrinkly, and it is huge compared to other organisms. Like it's humongous. So a lot of people would say that that's where our intelligence lies. And birds, spoiler alert, don't have it. Oh, no. I so know. they are bird brains. Yeah. There you go, right? <laughs> instead, birds seem to have, like, a different part of the brain that um, enlarged instead. Okay, so so larger in proportion than we have in our brains. Yeah, right. So there's a whole structure um, that includes cortex um, called pallium. And in mammals, uh, this whole structure that's pallium, sure, there's the cortex, which in humans is humongous. But there's other parts of it that are, you know, smaller or perform different functions. Um, there's a part of the structure called the amygdala um, that is part of the pallium. And some people think that the amygdala in birds, like this part of the pallium, is what grew uh, to these enormous sizes in birds. So what does the amygdala do in humans? Yeah, so in humans and mammals, the amygdala processes a lot of um, like emotions. There's uh, fear learning. Um, there is, it, it's very multifaceted structure, but it's not considered to be, you know, helping humans with the higher cognitive stuff um, like other regions and Okay, so let me go ahead and make a ridiculously uneducated assumption. You ready? Do it. We have a smaller amygdala, and the birds have a larger amygdala, which means that their fear learning and their emotions might be heightened compared to a human, which potentially allows them to be more, like, I don't know, maybe evasive in nature, uh, maybe be able to survive and respond to threats a little bit quicker than we can. That would be one idea, right? So I think like this is where my brain gets scrambled and this is where I mutter to myself in my room or, um, you know, run outside and yell at the birds or something. Like that. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Glad you <laughs> did that. 
So, like, I guess I've been struggling this for, for a while, but, like, what does it mean when, you know, an amygdala is one thing in mammals? Like, can the same brain structure have a totally different function in another group of so we don't we don't know if an amygdala is an amygdala is an amygdala. Say that yeah. like five times. Yikes! <laughs> it could be like the same type of cells, you know, like it might uh -huh. be born from the same place, but then what it does after that might be totally different in birds, than birds you know, in another group of animals. So why it gotta be so complicated? I don't know. Uh, no, we're working on it, but um, yeah, I think like the thing that I'm thinking of is maybe birds took this, you know, maybe, you know, back before when mammals and birds were first becoming their own thing, there's kind of like this early, you know, primordial brain structure and birds take one part of it and blow it up and use it for all these complicated functions. Mammals take another part and do the same thing just with another part of it. Okay. So it's kind of almost quote unquote, uh, a theory of a theory of evolution in its own sense. Yeah. Like we, we differentiated our species based on what we did with the brain. Is that kind of what you're suggesting? In a way, yeah. That just over the course of evolution, for some reason, birds used one part of the brain to do the same thing that mammals did with like a totally other part of the brain. Oh, interesting. Right. So our frontal cortex might do the same thing that the amygdala and a bird might do. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like that. Okay, so we now now here's another question. Do you know if all animals, or at least all, I guess, higher level animals, uh, have the same structures, maybe in different proportions or sizes? But do we all have the same structures? There are some that are in all vertebrates, at least, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, once you get into like the invertebrates, you know that starts becoming radically different. Yeah, right, because I, I mean, I always hear about the invertebrates. They have, like, weirdly different brains and everything, and it must be something about having their shells on the outside. That, you know. <laughs> Can I tell you something crazy? Tell me something crazy. Octopus. <gasps> okay, all right, all right. That's a cephalopod, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, see, I, now this is, like, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm really proud of myself because I'm straight-up chemist, and I was <laughs> able to, like, give you biology right there. You right, pulled so, it right out of the hat, man. <laughs> right out of that. Right out of that. Right. Out, I got Don't ask me you. any questions from your field. I'm not going to know. <laughs> <laughs> I won't because I don't know how to answer those either. So, <laughs> all right, octopus, tell me more. Okay, so an octopus has all these tentacles, right? Mm -hmm. Well, there's research that is suggesting that each one of those tentacles is separate. Oh, no. Oh, tell no. No, don't tell me. <laughs> I know. It kind of sounds like a Halloween thing or something. So so each tentacle is potentially its own, like, command center? Imagine if your arms and your legs had their own brains. And you still had your own brain. Like, you're still up here, right? You're still up here in the head. But every once in a while, like, your, your arm has its own sentient capability to, like, just act on its own do its own thing at least it's, for uh, a while it's like my brain my head brain would be my manager but yeah. then i got employees all over here who are the branch manager yeah the branch whoa the branch manager <laughs> this is getting a little bit too much for me over here yeah uh, so then uh, let me get your opinion and i want to go on record for this for the future will octopuses rule the world one day 
Um, Lewis, I'm going to go with a hard yes. Okay, deal. It's official. It is settled. They have more brains than us. We need to accept our octopus overlords. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I, that, that's that. Just watch my octopus teacher on Netflix. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's a good one. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Highly God. emotional. Highly Every, emotional. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought? So there's a recommendation <laughs> there. Um, so you study bird brains. I do. Sadly, not is... octopus, because when <laughs> you hear something like that. Honestly, like if you know anybody who wants to spend 45 minutes talking about octopus brains, send them my way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so you study bird brains. Um, and I mean this in a nice way, Jeremy. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. Hold on. Let me take a drink of water for this. Take, take a sip. Okay. You good? Yep. Yeah. You composed? I think so. Yeah. Why? Why bother? <laughs> like, come yeah. on, dude. We have like a lot of other problems in the world. What? We do. We have a lot of problems. Yeah. And and you're over here like, I'm going to study bird brains. Like, all right, Jeremy, sure. Contribute a little once in a while. I honestly, and I don't know a single basic researcher who doesn't do that. Like every once in a while you surface from, you know, what you're doing and you have this incredible feeling of, oh God, you know, am I doing something that matters? And I guess, you know, one part of it is just that we're extremely curious people. And then we have to reflect on like, wait, why... Why is the government and like, you know, why was I trained to to do this? You know, why were we studying all these animals and doing all these things? We, you know, we should just be pumping out stuff from rodents that are relevant to human. Um, you know, why are we looking at, you know, insects and why are we looking at, you know, octopus or bird? Um, and, you know, the track record of all of this have been that the discoveries and the ways of thinking about science, like, emerge from the most ridiculous and unexpected places. And even when it's something like bird brains, it might not be the most tangible thing, but the way that we study bird brains and evolution has an impact on how we view the results that we get from the rodents. So if we're thinking about developing a cure for a disease, if we're thinking about, you know, um, therapies that we can use in people, we're thinking about the learning about just how, what, how is a brain built? You know, how, are, how can we engineer this? Or how can we come up with an out-of-the-box solution? We won't always find those in mammals because mammals are just one part of the evolutionary tree. Like, it's just one part. So in some ways, if we're talking about wanting to understand how the brain functions, when we look at mammals, we essentially have a sample size of one. So from that perspective, you know, in order to understand things and break things down and learn how to build them back up again, uh, to expand our sample size across like a bunch of different types of vertebrates and invertebrates um, is kind of necessary. But it's also something that won't immediately lead to a cure for cancer. Um, it's something that we invest in and sort of reap the long-term benefits of the seeds we plant, you know, now in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, you know, and, and let me add something to that, because you, you bring up a topic which we could discuss about for like 13 different episodes about why we do these, what many people might consider like fringe studies. Yeah. Um, like if the goal is to cure cancer, we at this point, we don't know how to do it. Like that's it. We, we just don't know how to do it right now. So it's not that we're, you know, scraping the barrel for ideas over here, but we are willing to look at everything and everything out there. 
Maybe there is an animal out there who can regulate and destroy their own brain cancer. You know, yeah. and, and, and we don't know that because we're not looking at it. So if we say, okay, this bird actually does a phenomenal job of, you know, preventing bird cancer, bird brain cancer, uh, we can then use that as an inspiration to develop remedies for humans. Right. You know, uh, in food science that uh, I often see a lot of studies about like, ah, yes, eating avocados are going to cure cancer. We know they're not going to cure cancer, but... but controversial. Controversial. Yeah, I know. This movie right? one controversial topic to another. I'm going to get a lot of hate, but I actually already signed, you know, the paperwork for my fellowship, so I'm like, can't fire me now. <laughs> Um, but 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 we, we, we don't know that avocados are going to cure cancer, whether we think to ourselves, well, what if this leads us to understanding a chemical that is super effective against cancer because yeah. of chemicals in avocados? So we're not really trying to, you know, make an avoc- make guacamole and put it on your brain and cure cancer. And you're not trying to, you know, cure cancer in brains for birds. We're trying to grab inspiration from different things. And I think that that's what makes something like what you do a little bit more uh, tangible. Yeah, yeah. We're trying to we're trying to grab out-of-the-box ideas. And, yeah, one way to do that is to look at things that are outside of the box. Yeah, so if we were to potentially, like, sell what you're doing right now, wh- how could we make money off of what you're doing? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, how can we make money off of the bird brain, right? Yeah, like, wh- wh- where, where's the product? Like, even if it's not immediate step, what's the something uh, tangible, maybe not even tangible, or an idea that you could get from your work? Yeah, I don't know if I see any, you know, immediate, you know, economic product that we get out of it. I do know that um, when we think about the way that we're trying to break down the you know, how this advanced structure evolved is that we're looking at, um, you know, like the genes and the circuits that are kind of able to perform these really complicated calculations. So in mammals, you know, we kind of have this idea of how cortex is, you know, sending information in very efficient ways. But in birds and other mammal or in other animals, they might be doing a computation in their brains that would actually be really effective to try to mimic you know, in a robot or a, or a computer circuit chip. So maybe there's some ideas, um, some bio-inspiration that we can glean from um, the way that animals have evolved to process complex information very quickly. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And I know in the age of you know artificial intelligence and machine learning that that's kind of a big thing because a lot of uh, machine learning is kind of based off of human logic and then some is based off of not human logic and uh, one thing that i think is uh, becoming a little more popular now is fuzzy logic which is you know imperfectness of human logic so i'd be curious to see if like brain logic from a bird or a dolphin or an octopus might be so significantly different that we can approach you know computing in a different way yeah i i yeah i think there's a lot to be had there and you know, all over the place, I'm seeing neuroscientists and, you know, ecologists and people studying animal behavior, either they're learning these computation tools by themselves, or they're reaching out and collaborating, you know, with engineers or computer scientists. And 
like there's a lot going on here that you know could lead to a lot of stuff yeah it's it's crazy how these things can kind of jump from one thing to another um i mean that's the interconnectedness of science it's almost yeah. as if a brain is firing from multiple different portions in order to <laughs> almost know, go towards one goal you know yeah all right so in order to wrap things up what would you say is the moral of the story why did someone just listen to like all of this episode about bird brains what's what's the moral hmm i guess i would say that the moral of the story is don't call someone a bird brain until you looked at the bird brain oh that's a good moral that yeah <laughs> that's good that's good watch your mouth people those birds know a lot oh uh, they do <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, for a little conversation about bird brains. Um, I don't know about you, but I think I might go outside and go shout at a bird because honestly, it sounds very therapeutic. Yeah, um, I can I can tell you that. What I what I will say though is that um, don't shout at the birds. Oh. They, they deal with enough already. <laughs> <laughs> Their lives are hard enough. How rude! Their lives are hard enough. So what do I do? I just talk to them gently. What are their favorite topics? What are... Yeah, yeah. Whisper. You know, maybe uh, gentle, gentle readings of poetry. Um, okay. And then, do yeah. they have some favorite authors? Do you, you know? I, I don't. I don't want to speak for them. I, okay. You know. Fair. Fair. Yeah. He he studies their brain, but he is not a voice for the birds. Yeah, I am not. I'm not a bird, so so I may not speak for them. One thing to say too about you know the. Um, like I, I was thinking about this as you're talking about going around and shouting at the birds and, and the moral of things is that, you know, these basic sciences are also, you know, we're also responsible for, um, you know, the community outreach and the education of like the next generation of scientists. So to an extent, like all these out of the box ideas and these ways of studying things are raising, you know, a next generation of scientists that are hopefully, you know, more representative of, the populations that we have in our country um, that can tackle these out-of-the-box questions because they grew up thinking about science and all these interesting ways. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and one part I always love to do in this show is the, and a lot of times when I talk to ecologists mostly, and they tell us about, you know, declining population of this and global warming, that I always like to ask for a little bit of sunshine at the end of the episode. So could you give us some general tips for us to help the birds in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think the major thing, and 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 this is a controversial one. Okay. Outside of the birding community. All right. Keep your cats indoors. Ah, yes, I've heard this one before. Yeah, it's hard. I grew up with indoor/outdoor cats, but I think any of us knows that you know, no matter how many excuses you make for your cat, it's still you know racking up its sparrow murder count every year. And uh, I definitely saw that when I was growing up with my cats and. There are some ridiculous figures, and you should look it up. All like right. Number, I think the oatmeal has like a comic about this. Okay, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, just so much cat murder. But the but the silver lining is that this is a totally preventable, you know, an easy fix, so to speak, is something really tangible that we can all do. All right, everyone, do it for the birds. Do it for the birds. Okay, well, thank you so much for talking with us, Jeremy. It really was a true pleasure uh, getting inside the brain of a bird and you. <laughs> well, thanks for picking it.
While Jeremy is often yelling at birds in the park, he took a little bit of time today to listen to Jeremy talk all about brains. And I guess more specifically, why we should care about bird brains. And after this show is done, the radio is then going to play some sort of music. So imagine if those were birds singing their songs just for enjoyment as we are singing our songs for our enjoyment. And as for a time-held tradition on We Know Some Stuff, we like to end every episode with a little bit of a fact check and re-clarification just to make sure that our bird brains didn't get anything wrong. That being said, we reviewed the episode, heard it once or twice, sang it out loud, and we didn't come up with anything that needed to be corrected. And the disclaimer at that sentence, that little asterisk in the fine print, is that oftentimes information changes, and when information changes, we'll make those corrections. But until then... We are set and happy with what was said on this show's program today. So as a treat to end the episode, we're going to do a musical rendition by Jeremy, singing one of his favorite bird songs. What, no, we're, we're cutting that? We're not? You don't? Okay, we are not doing a rendition of Jeremy's singing song. Either way, thanks for listening to another episode of We Know Some Stuff.